In this episode of Heroes of Futurism, Susan and I chat about her recent trip to Copenhagen. We delve into how a shifting culture affects the experience and functioning of a city and how that ultimately frames how it brands itself as a commercial hub and tourist destination which is fit for the future. Welcome to the podcast Heroes of Futurism with me, Jonathan Cherry. This podcast is about the future and how to create it, what opportunities exist, what ideas are worth thinking about, and how you can begin to design the future that you want. Let's start right now. So welcome to the third episode of Heroes of Futurism. That is the name of it now. So welcome, Susan. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming. Great. So since our last podcast, uh, we were speaking about uh, inspiration mm. for innovation um, and that's what we were hoping to do was actually get a whole list of resources that people could um, click on. But I think, unfortunately, what you said is, uh, what you find the best is to actually go out and uh, walk the streets. And apparently you've been doing that for the past week. So tell us about where you've been. Mm. So I've just come back from a trip. Uh, I did Barcelona. So I did uh, three days in Barcelona shopping. And then shopping for, so we look for concepts, we look for colors, we look for, so just give us some context. Okay. So you, you work, in I work in the, the clothing, clothing industry, industry right. in South Africa. And so one of the benefits about being in the, in the Southern hemisphere is that we are a season behind, so to say. Okay. As long as we follow mainstream trends, we're a season behind. So we launch our summer All retailers in South Africa will launch summer, uh, kind of, you know, 1 to 15 uh, July. Uh, when it's still freezing cold, that's why you often can't understand that's why. Next week. Yeah. No, July. That's this week. Yeah. No, we're no. in August. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, See, I'm living in the past now. So why you do that is to get your deliveries out. You often have to anniversarize sales. And uh, so that you've got six months to sell a season's worth of short sleeve teas. So... Also, I think sometimes people live in certain areas in, in South Africa and you think that the weather for the rest of the country is like that. Um, so yeah, so we're in summer technically. And so when you're in summer, you'll be in winter markdown and that's no, no different but to the rest on. of the world. So in, in Cape Town, it's still pretty much winter. So if I have missed buying my winter coat now, you buy it on markdown. Oh, oh that's a good. <laughs> Hold on. Are you allowed to be saying that? No, well, you know, it just depends how badly you want something. If you want something and it's the hot fashion item or you want it earlier. So the people in Joburg experience their winter much earlier. So Joburg is almost like exactly as the seasons are taught to children, you know, from one September, it's spring from, you know, give or take a year. This, so this year has actually been quite a warm winter from our area managers up in, up in Johannesburg. I've said that it was actually really warm. They've already, you know, they're all in t-shirts and shorts already. Oh, nice. So yeah, so it is a tricky thing. So your first season, first of season is always tricky. I find my experience in retail in South Africa, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. South Africans don't tend to buy transitional wardrobes. We layer. Mm. We've got, the majority of South Africans have got more limited money. So we don't always buy a new coat every winter. Mm. Sometimes we'll wear last year's coat. So I think where you can, um, where a lot of retailers will get it right is people spend on their kids first. So 
you know, if you are a big retailer and you've got kids as a demographic, you often will, or, or as an offering at least in your range, you'll offer often offer your kids range, pump that up first for your early summer hmm. or early winter. Because mothers will buy for their kids first, you know, parents buy for their kids first, and then they'll buy for themselves. Um, right. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so let, we're getting sidetracked. Let's so. just get, let's get tra- back onto Barcelona. Yeah. So Barcelona was great. So why another important part of why we're traveling is we test all over the world, retailers, brands, designers, uh, labels will test their first three months of the season for the following season. So if it's July and August, you will often test what you want to open summer with because it's still warm uh, for overseas. So we were interested to see what Barcelona was testing because you get a really good idea of how they're going to roll out the next season. So you obviously get this insight after traveling many times to mm. the same kinds of destinations. And why Barcelona is important for us is because of the Interdex group. So that is Zara, Bershka, Pulembe, Oisho, uh, Stradivarius. So quite a wide uh, demographic that they're catering for. So is that the biggest is that the biggest clothing uh, I think it is the biggest retail conglomerate in yeah, the world? Yeah, I think so. All right. So it's it's worthwhile then following what they're doing. Well we don't follow because they're very different to the brand that I um, am working for. Um and you know we are more of a value retailer and obviously Interdex is much more aspirational, much more fashion, fashionable, but there are certain lessons that we can take. So it's good to see how have they updated their tables as you're walking into the store. Yeah. So when they block you and you have to walk around, what is on that table? Mm. Because that is the thing that they're trying to get traction on. So you obviously have a, I mean, your world is clothing. Do you think there are other industries that that same methodology of understanding how a bigger competitor is doing work internationally do you think there are other industries that can uh do similar uh sort of trend spotting or um well i think retail in general will do that right it's all Mm. about the science of how the stores are laid out and now with online it's the science of how you yeah how you lay your your site out you know except with online and digital platforms you get instant feedback which is amazing data to have in yeah. order to to modify behavior and and sales and and patterns and buying patterns and products so much more difficult in bricks and mortar unless yeah. you're literally standing in the store but i guess if you're in tech or you're in um yeah well if you're in technology you would go to the big uh, technology conferences and fairs mm-hmm. south by southwest or sure. you go through to um that giant thing in las vegas mm-hmm. um similar kind of things but as you say like um So there you're looking for innovation and you're looking for, yeah, it's just a different way. So, so why I actually, I started in Barcelona, but the main purpose of the trip was for me to go to a trade fair and the trade fair was in Copenhagen in, um, a a trade fair called CIFF, C-I-F-F. It's not great in South African context, but, but, uh, everywhere else in the world, I think it's, uh, An acronym that seems to make sense. Okay, so tell us about that. How was that? Yeah, so... In Copenhagen. Yes, I've been to many trade fairs. I've been to Magic in Las Vegas. I went used to go to Bread and Butter when it was still going. I went once in Barcelona. I went to Bread and Butter in Berlin. I've been to 
which other ones have I gone to? I think those are the main ones. Um, and I always find them very interesting. Uh, so what it is, is it's a showcase for European brands specifically, and they've got a, a actual Danish part, specifically Danish. And then they are also open to European brands in general. And the brands will launch their summer collections that are open to buy. So you'll get little boutiques uh, from, you know, the South of France that will come and buy from very specific labels. But then you also get the big guys like, uh, I don't know if, Ms. Sel- uh, if Selfridges was there, but you get the big department stores that come and buy as well. Uh, Selfridges or Harrods. So they'll come and write business. So they actually sit with an order form. The buyers and the, the, well, the sales merchants on the floor will take them through the actual range um, and say, this is our first delivery, our second delivery, our third delivery. So you can see how you can stack up your season. And they actually go to write the business. And I was just looking, uh, the company that I work for hasn't had this as a modus operandi up until now. So it's a new way of thinking for us. Mm. Um, and it was hugely beneficial. Yeah. Uh, so what you and I had, uh, kind of, uh, chatted about briefly was just about, let me share any of my insights mm. and yeah, I mean, I, I did speak to you about it. I, I was quite underwhelmed by Copenhagen and let me tell you the that city. yeah, the city, so not Denmark at all. I didn't go outside of Copenhagen. It's a very small city, but since I would say probably for the last 10 to 12 years, I've been following Copenhagen street style online. Um, as soon as Instagram came out, I was on following the hashtag, following, you know, their, 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 uh, yeah, I used to just Google it actually and, and see what people were wearing on the streets in Copenhagen. And it's been this aspiration of mine, uh, to eventually go there. And I just didn't, I don't know if the world has become smaller and now we've actually got quite a cool sense of style here that people are being very, ex- you know, experimenting more. And I think that millennials do give us that. They give us a, an amazing freedom of style that I don't think the Gen Xs had. Um, and with social media, we are exposed to that. So we're able to see on our feeds, just our friends that live around the corner that are posting really cool pictures at a site that I've probably walked past a hundred times that I never thought was cool. Um, and now they're making it cool, you know? And, and I think that because now you can get any brand you want anytime you want. So it's not about, you know, you can import and export style pretty much. So I don't feel that, just didn't feel that aspirational. So I felt a bit underwhelmed. Okay. So the um, experience online was better than the, the experience of actually being there. Yeah. Or maybe you just built it up so much. Maybe. That, so okay. I'm not sure. And also I did travel alone to Copenhagen. So that is also different, but you know, I traveled alone to Berlin before and what I just felt there was a general energy that seemed to be lacking. And maybe it's just the state of fashion at the moment. Uh, we chatted about briefly, you know, in a previous podcast, maybe it is just the kind of people revolting towards, mm. you know, the state of affairs and, and the fact that clothing industry is being, uh, you know, very publicly lambasted for, for the damage that they're doing. So mm. it might be that maybe it was just a very different time 10 years ago. Because you also mentioned that there are a lot of vegan and vegetarian restaurants. Yeah. It is- so could it not be that people are also, as you say, becoming a little bit anti-establishment in their uh, fashion choices that maybe they're rebelling against the whole fashion? Well, that was what I always saw of. out of Copenhagen. I always saw how anti-establishment it was. They put together these amazing uh, outfits that I would just never dream of 
thinking of, you know, like I, I, I'd never thought of, of putting this top with that, you know, pair of pants. And so, so funnily enough, it was quite anti-establishment. They were, they were very different in the way that they put their colors together, their patterns together. And everyone just seemed to look like a model. I mean, they're a very beautiful nation, uh, like everyone that was there. And, and they do lack diversity, but there were, you know, some, you know, there were a few different cultures because of the, the melting pot of the, of the, fair that that was bringing together you know different cultures but it is very isolated and and secular in a way mm. the look kind of like australia that's what i found about australia is that when well let me be specific perth australia that from my perspective and i'm sure that i'll get some backlash about it but from my perspective perth is like super one-dimensional mm. you know there's there's one culture, and if you deviate out of that culture, you're kind of like not necessarily accepted. That's just what I sure. perceived. So I don't, I don't know if that's reality, but that's how I felt. Well, also it's Fashion Week in Copenhagen, so I was expecting, and it's Pride Week in a week or two, so I was expecting to see a bit more, you know, some more crazy combinations and some, some, yeah, just to be shocked or to be inspired a bit more. And yeah, I didn't really get that from watching the street fashion. Uh, there was a very clear look that's in, which is a trunky trainer and a trapeze dress, um, or a kind of midi or maxi skirt. So that is the uniform with, with women. And the men very much got that Scandinavian wide, like quite a Japanesey kind of aesthetic. So wider, straight cut, uh, cotton rich pants with a polo neck, with a shirt open over. So with a beanie on, you know, whether it's 40 degrees outside, you know, people right. still insisting on wearing a beanie, but I, you know, part of it. So, I know you and I did have a conversation. You were like, well, is that not the Scandinavian look? Is it just, you know, simple? Mm. Um, but then, you know, I compared it to being in Tokyo. And there it is very clinical, right? Very square cut. They don't waste fabric on all their curves. Their body types don't are not really accentuating. Uh, they don't really accentuate curves in their clothing because they, they have got a straighter fit on their body. Um, but there was this energy in Tokyo, you know. So I haven't been to another Scandinavian country. So we are going to Norway at the end of the year. So maybe we can, it'll be interesting for me to compare it to that. But, you know, the Japanese have got this, well, okay, I can't say the Japanese, but Tokyo. We, I experienced a very clean cut um, aesthetic, but there was this energy about Tokyo, the actual city that got me excited and, you know, people just seem to be so well put together. And I'm not, you know, obviously you get the color and the weirdness and all of that coming out of Harajuku, but the general Shibuya Shinjuku, like, you know, where we were, it's very ordered. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So my impression of, uh, having <laughs> not been to Copenhagen, my impression is blondes, bikes, and death metal. That's, that's Copenhagen. exactly what it is. <laughs> it's And there was a death metal concert that Black Diamond or, no? Right. Diamond head or whatever. Um, that was on, on the Sunday or the Saturday. So everyone was wearing their docks and their, so it is, yeah, it's very simple lines and I get it. But when I was reflecting on the plane ride back, the one thing that I thought of, so that, well, not one, I thought of a few things at the same time, but one of the things was that they've got five bicycles. They've got more bicycles than people in the country, five bicycles for every four people. This was a statistic on uh, one of the tour I went on. Where? They're greedy. <laughs> so, and not p particularly fancy bikes, you know, some kind of more modernish ones. And generally they're those kind of 
a day bike. It's a utility you know, bike. Yeah, it doesn't have yeah. gears or doesn't yeah. seem to have gears. It's very like retro looking. It's very cool look. Yeah. And this is the thing that they really push as their brand. Um, so, you know, when you go to Amsterdam, there's millions of bikes. And after a Saturday night or a Sunday night or Friday night, you see quite a few bikes trashed along the side of the canals. But they've actually embraced the bike as part of their brand in, in, in Copenhagen and their t-shirts with bikes on. There are chocolates with bikes on. Everything seems to have a bike on in the tourist area. So I'm not again speaking for the greater area. I'm talking about the high streets and uh, specifically the area of Strotget and there was another area. Uh, so the main kind of shopping younger areas um, and it's all about the bicycle. But then it also made me think that I was speaking to someone and they said, well, the government has made this their clear option and popular option for travel. This is what they want to push people to use as their travel, as their like default travel option. And then when I, after I'd heard that and I took a step back and I looked at it now through a different lens, and I know you're going to enjoy this, so I'm quite excited to share it. <laughs> it was just the way that the policy is totally supporting that strategy. And I feel like it's something that we, my experience in, in South Africa and in Cape Town specifically, is that sometimes we'll come up with strategies, but not necessarily have the foresight to stop and plan it properly and then make sure that the greater system is supporting what the goal is. So my example of this was that, first of all, when you go to the tube stations or not the underground or the train stations, um, there's bike racks. I took photos. Like we can actually load it on bike racks for days, similar to Amsterdam in that way. They've just got, there's no parking lots. You cannot park a car, but you can park your bike. So that was the one thing. Then on the buses, and I took mostly buses and it was really efficient way of traveling buses, the tubes and the trains, you can take bikes onto specific carriages and onto specific buses, which is great. So it means that when you go to your next little town or you're going three stops down, you can still use your bike. So that was the next thing. Even in the airport, you can take your bike into the lift and there are spaces where you can actually house your bike if you're traveling by plane. So it was just like every single, every single restaurant has a bike rack. So everything was centered around the strategy and in order to facilitate the strategy. I didn't see many places that were fixing bike, uh, the tubes, the tires. And I don't know what they're doing to recycle the tires because obviously that's super, you know, bad for the environment to be producing tires that will be required for, for this. Um, but yeah, I suppose one would have to look at what is worse, you know, uh, fumes from cars or making cars, carbon footprint, petrol, gas, or, or bicycle tires. So I yeah. guess you've got to weigh that up. So it was just how everything, then they've got bike lanes. The first bike lane was, was built in 1920, like all around about early twenties. The other thing was the buses. Everyone is aware of the cyclists. There's no bumper sticker saying watch for the, watch out for the bike. There's no sign saying, bikes you know there's a clear lane for bikes and it says bike lane mm. and that's it and people don't walk in the bike lane yeah people walk on the pavement then there's a bike lane and then they've only got in the main city like one row one lane on each side of the road and uh, the one thing that i realized <laughs> was that the bikes obey the traffic laws mm. and i know that seems like quite an obvious thing they don't ride two up they ride single file 
they stop when the robot is red. They wait for pedestrians. They give way to pedestrians. Mm. You know, so it was just everyone is working towards us. Everyone was using hand signals. It was, yeah. So it was just really a well thought out strategy. So while you're speaking, the only I thing... I see a smile on that face. <laughs> Look, so just for pure uh, transparency, I've been involved in the bicycle business uh, in some sense for the last couple of years. I'm no longer involved, but I... <laughs> you still get the phone calls. <laughs> I still get the phone calls, but it's very much a case where absolutely, like bicycle-wise, that is the world u- utopia. But in some sense, as you're speaking, the only thing, the only word that comes to my mind is culture, culture, culture. Mm. Because absolutely. But in the same sense that Japan also has a culture of design, Copenhagen has a culture of like working collectively as a community to choose transport options which are beneficial for their society. And in a way, they can absolutely do that because the culture is homogenous. And they don't have like this glaring disparity of inequality. In South Africa, once you've made a little bit of money, the first thing you do is go out and buy yourself a BMW 3 Series to show, hey, check out, freaking arrived. Now, if you, you know, if you've made money, you are certainly not going to go and buy a bicycle because it's more efficient. So I absolutely love the Copenhagen story and I love like that they're able to do that. But in so many ways, I think it's a fantastic story because it just shows how glaringly different it is in South Africa, which is absolutely a culture thing. No, for sure. And also I think they, uh, while you were saying that, another thing that reminded me, uh, on the weekends, so in certain parts, and we experienced it in Ginza and Tokyo as well, where they shut the main road in Ginza, so no cars can go down that main drag. It's for people to walk and ride their bikes. Mm. And they do the same thing in Copenhagen. They do the same thing in Rio, not for bikes, but for people running because so many people access uh, their promenade that they close it from uh, Rio, like a long Rio from um Copacabana and, you know, that whole Ipanema, that whole beachfront, they do the same thing. Mm. So I guess in a weird way, the culture's maybe forced on them. <laughs> yeah, I'm not well, saying that's the solution, but... Well, I think, again, in Rio, may, I, I, they also have massive inequality. Yes. But I think in Rio, they've got a cult, a beach culture. In yeah. a way, that, like, it's it sells into the beach culture. culture. Um, that skateboard, bicycle... Mm. The kids vibe. play soccer. Exactly. Yeah. And what we saw, I think, last summer in South Africa is South Africa also has a beach culture, which is unbelievably divided in the way that people use the beach. Yeah. And even that is a con- like a contentious racial issue yeah. in this country, which we obviously don't deal with. We just put it under the carpet. Mm. But, yeah, it's frustrating because... So I'm not trying to say that that approach would work here at Mm. all not even about the bicycles but just you know but what i am saying what i wasn't inspired by was the thought at which they considered the system when they decided to make a strategic decision as a as a city yeah no i agree and i think again they got um homogenous government that's probably a hell of a lot more stable than ours and the government does what's right for the country, I guess. It's, yeah. yeah. And it's frustrating because I think we see it all the time and it's just like, well, you know, who's our government actually working for? Because when mm. they make decisions to put in bike lanes, people say, well, to benefit who? 
Mm. Um, and as much as the local government says, well, it's to benefit society, is it really? Because you're putting in a bike lane that services one area of the city, which is predominantly of one race group. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, you know, we both know that it's just a complex issue, but I absolutely, you know, the example is, is great. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, another thing I thought of while I was there, which you and I have spoken about at length, was, um, this whole city as a brand yeah. thing and uh, Copenhagen, they just put that red and white flag on everything. They're known for the, you know, well, what they punt to the, to the tourists, it's their biscuits and it's their, you know, the, the bicycle. So they put the bicycle in every single t-shirt you can find. So it was just, uh, it did again, leave me thinking, you know, what is, I didn't look at it from a city point of view, but rather a country specific point of thing like what is our brand in south africa so yes part of the brand is the big five you know because you can come in safari here and most of the people that i speak to when i'm overseas they'll say oh i went to south africa i went either on safari or i went to surf so either the kiteboarding or the actual traditional surf J bay obviously being one of the asp you know destinations yeah. um so yeah, it did make me think, you know, we, we haven't yet, we don't lambaste Nelson Mandela's face. He's our brand probably. If I have to think of something immediately, we don't lambaste our flag. Maybe I haven't experienced South Africa as a tourist destination. So maybe we need to challenge ourselves. Actually, mm. that could be a cool exercise. Let's go and pretend to be tourists in our country. Mm. Let's see what we can buy. And we've both traveled quite a lot to the East and the West. And let's just see how we compare from a brand point of view. Yeah. Maybe you can come up with a framework for us. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's an excellent point because if you compare our sort of tourist branding strategy to that of New Zealand or to mm. um, Australia, Australia, remember Design and Dog, where we saw that Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, and I think Australia have done such a great job with that, the bloody hell are you? <laughs> so it was very much about their culture and about yeah. how brash and abrasive their culture is. And New Zealand have got this whole thing helped, obviously, by Lord of the Rings being shot mm. there, but it's all about pure New Zealand. Mm which is all about, you know, environmental um, purity. And sure. if you really want to experience the raw power of nature, then come to New Zealand. Mm. Um, and I think they've done really well with that. Mm. I, again, I, I agree with you. I just find our tourism message disjointed. It's all over the place. But let's go and experience. Okay, so we're going to go and yeah. experience... We have to do Cape Town because we're here. I'm sounding super negative. You are sounding negative. It's because I haven't just jetted in from Copenhagen. No, no, no. But <laughs> let's, no, but I, no, I don't want to agree with you, but I find myself that I am agreeing with you. But I think that before we can make that statement, let's go. Let's do Table Mountain. Let's go and buy key rings and let's go and buy that. Let's see what we can do as tourists in our own country. Done. You don't have to ask me twice. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we'll report back. All right. <laughs> So until next time, uh, which will be next week, I think we're doing this once a week, yeah. uh, getting into that group. And actually, we're now on Spotify. So if you have a Spotify account, you can find the podcast on Spotify. It's under Cherry Flavor, so mm -hmm. just look at that. Uh, still trying to get onto Apple iTunes. They're being a little bit sticky. They're saying this podcast doesn't look like it really is serious. So I don't know. We'll get there one day. If you've got any feedback, please feel free <laughs> to share that with us. Yeah, I think we just got to upload a couple more episodes. But um, so feel free to subscribe and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Heroes of Futurism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and we'll see you next time. Cheers.